Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh, I took an informal poll with our listeners, and most of them wish you were frozen in carbonite. Wow. All right. <laughs> Starting off with the insults. Here. That's not me. That's what they said. Yeah. Uh-huh. Somehow I, uh-huh. I doubt that that was the case, but uh, I'm here. I'm not frozen in carbonite. And we just finished up our season on the films of 1980. If you were listening, you heard our finale and our epilogue, but we're going back to it already because who cares? It's anarchy. Um, (laughs) We wanted to do a couple of bonus episodes for this season. And in particular, in this episode, we wanted to talk about the film that was actually number one at the box office. If you listened to earlier in the season, we did our box office champion episode on nine to five, which was number two. But we wanted to come back to this little film because there seems to still be some interest in this franchise. It is The Empire Strikes Back, the second film in the never-ending Star Wars series. And uh, we talked a lot about Star Wars in our 1977 season when we did an episode on the first film. But there's certainly plenty more to talk about. So here we are with The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, this is the first, um, not the first sequel we have ever covered, but the first sequel or piece of a series that we've ever covered that we've covered the first one of also do you know what right. i mean this yeah so yes. it'll be cool because we've already covered star wars so if you want to know about mark hamill's legacy uh and uh, han solo whoever played him go back and listen to that one but we're going to just focus on empire and the things uh that are just related to this that we're not related to our first Star Wars episode. But of course, it's all related because it's Star Wars universe. And that's the universe we live in. Star Wars, everything, Marvel, everything, Star Marvel, ever, everything. Yes, it mm-hmm. is the world we live in. So it it is inescapable. And that's why we're doing an episode on it. Even though we we escaped it earlier this season, we were drawn back in like a like a tractor beam. Is there a tractor mm. beam in this movie? I think there isn't, but there is yeah. one movie at least. Like uh, It's like we were on Hoth. And then we narrowly got away from all those ATAT walkers. But, uh, uh, you know, the Empire tracked us down, Josh. They did. And so here we are talking about this film, which is often considered the best film in the Star Wars series, even as this franchise has grown larger and larger with more movies and now a bunch of TV series. I think there's still that reputation of this film um, that has just grown since its initial release in 1980 and people generally still think of it as the best film in the series. And uh, I guess we will see if we share that opinion. Obviously this movie was a huge, huge hit. Of course, Star Wars itself, as we talked about in our Star Wars episode was not a sure thing by any means, but turned out to be this amazingly popular movie. So of course, going into this film, there was a much higher anticipation There was uh, a much greater budget for this film, although George Lucas, to his credit, you know, I think as we talked about in the last film, really had this foresight to maintain control over the franchise and finance this film himself and only uh, retain entire creative control and only uh, kind of license the distribution rights to 20th Century Fox 
So the film ended up costing $30.5 million, which is certainly a lot of money for a film in 1980. And it was a budget that ballooned over the course of production, but it grossed $401.5 million worldwide on its initial release. And of course, has been re-released a number of times in various formats. So eventually grossed, according to Wikipedia, between $538 and $549 million overall over the course of many decades and probably will again. This is the kind of movie that even with streaming and all the home media, I bet you when we get to like 2030 and it's the 50th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back, it'll be released in theaters again and make a bunch more money. Well, that's if it takes that long, Josh. They might just be like, hey, uh, it's cold outside because of a climate change. You know what else was called Hoth? Here's Empire Strikes Back re-release. So. Yeah, absolutely. That that certainly could be the case. Or uh, if George Lucas decides to uh, come out of his retirement to tinker with it yet again and add some new awful things to it, yeah. it'll come out uh, again. But for now, uh, that's where it stands. Um, we talked about in our Star Wars episode something that I actually personally was a bit surprised about at how many Oscars Star Wars itself had been nominated, that not only was it this box office success, but it had been nominated for all these top awards, which is something that fans of Star Wars now complain about, that these uh, genre films don't get that level of respect. But uh, Empire is more along the lines of what modern sci-fi blockbusters get in that it was nominated for four Oscars, but mainly in kind of technical categories. It won the Oscar for Best Sound, and for Best Visual Effects. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction, and John Williams was nominated for Best Original Score. So uh, not the same showing as the original. And, and I was surprised to see, too, that reviews at the time, even though this is now considered such a great film, that critics were kind of mixed on it at the time that it was released. Yeah, and I think part of that is, you know, obviously it's a darker tone, and a lot of them are like, where's the whimsy? And I personally love the darker tone. That That's what attracted me to this movie in the first place. Yeah, and I think that's what is generally praised about it at the time. But I, I can see, you know, it's hard. It's hard enough for us to get into the mentality of people seeing any of these movies that we talk about for the first time, but especially something like this that has become so ubiquitous to imagine not knowing anything about it or only knowing what you had seen in the first Star Wars and thinking what the expectations would be and how people would have experienced this film for the first time. And you can imagine that subverting those expectations might have led to some mixed responses. Now, of course, all Star Wars media is just about fulfilling fan expectations. So that's that's all we get. Yeah, it's uh, I, I'm enjoying, you know, the new Obi-Wan Kenobi show. I know we both watched it and uh, Mandalorian. I didn't watch Boba Fett. It's it's just oversaturation as we talked about, you know, this Marvel. It's like, how can you keep up with all this? Do you not have anything to do with your life? You know, yeah. are you just sitting are you just sitting in your apartment all day? Oh, never mind, Josh. <laughs> well, I think what it is is that, you know, uh, people like us, we keep up with a lot of variety of movies and TV shows. And so it feels like, oh, how can we just spend all our time watching Star Wars and Marvel? Whereas a lot of fans they don't. They have the time because all they do is watch Star Wars and Marvel stuff. Yes. And uh, to go back to our Swingers episode, John Favreau, the king of uh, rebooting universes and expanding them into these worldwide monoliths. Yes. Yes, he is. But I also found fascinating here that despite uh, the success of Star Wars, 
that George Lucas, before Star Wars came out, had this plan in place that if Star Wars had not been a huge success, he still wanted to continue. So he would have made this lower budget sequel. And he commissioned a novel by the author Alan Dean Foster called Splinter of the Mind's Eye that was set up as a sequel to the original Star Wars that he could produce on a lower budget. And it was fascinating to me the way that Lucas plans this stuff, that he's this mastermind, even going back to before Star Wars came out, where he thought, okay, I'm going to hire this novelist and I'm going to tell him, you have to essentially write me a low budget movie in a novel and use these locations and these props and these characters. And that'll be the template for my sequel if I don't make enough money. And of course, that's not what happened, but I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah. And that novel came out. Have you ever read it? I have not. I many years ago, uh, before the uh, Star Wars sequels came out, Timothy Zahn, and before there were like a million Star Wars novels, Timothy Zahn wrote a trilogy of Star Wars novels, uh, starting with, I think it's called Heir to the Empire, that was set up as if those were like episodes uh, seven, eight, and nine. And I remember reading those because those were a big deal. And they were pretty good. But then I'm not enough of a Star Wars fan to read so many Star Wars novels. So uh, I never read Splinter of the Mind's Eye, but it is basically the first Star Wars novel. So it has a lot of uh, following among fans, I think. But just the process of that to me, more than the book itself, whether it's good, was just fascinating the way that Lucas is always thinking ahead like this because he wants to create this multimedia empire. I have to agree with you, Josh. Well, thank you. Is, is, is that book considered canon now or is it just some weird offshoot? No, it's just some weird offshoot because... I don't know if it ever was, but even if it was at one point considered canon, it's like a side adventure in between the movies or whatever. When Disney bought Lucasfilm and started making new movies and new TV series, they basically said every novel, comic book, video game that has been released is no longer canon. They just erased Mm. it all. And so, which, uh, you know, the super hardcore Star Wars fans have very strong opinions about this stuff. I'm but sure. but the bottom line was Disney wanted to, to set their own course for it and not have to be beholden to what some novelist wrote or whatever. So they just decided it was all. I mean, they, you can still buy the books. I'm sure um, there's actually a whole, I don't know, this is sort of getting away, but there's a whole controversy with Disney not paying royalties to the authors of these Star Wars spinoffs that were published before Disney bought the company and claiming like, we don't have to do that. And Alan Dean Foster, in fact, was leading the charge to uh, get Disney to pay him his royalties for Splinter of the Mind's Eye, as well as the like novelization of the first Star Wars movie. But yeah, that's sort of a side issue. Give Disney a break. It's not like they have money to like just throw around. (laughs) Yeah. What are they going to do? Look for old contracts and pay what people are owed? I mean, who wants to do that? That's ridiculous. They're just scraping by right now. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a whole thing. And Alan, Alan Dean Foster was actually like the, the most high profile because he's older and in, in poor health. And it's like he needs this money to live and Disney isn't going to give it to him. So wonderful stuff. Uh, <laughs> the happiest place on earth. Exactly. So anyway, like I said, a lot of critics were not that into this film, Um, but we'll start with somebody who I feel like we often end up with this guy as the curmudgeon who doesn't like stuff. But uh, Gary Arnold in the Washington Post was a huge fan of this movie and really, I feel like, saw a lot of what people see in it um, as time has gone on. So he said, Empire turns out to be a stunning successor, a tense and pictorially dazzling science fiction chase melodrama that sustains two hours of elaborate adventure while sneaking up on you emotionally. 
Empire is a thrilling, witty, inventive continuation of Star Wars, but it also introduces a more serious approach and springs an astonishing plot twist, which promises to keep audiences buzzing and open up the story for deeper dramatic exploitation. Surprises are in store, perhaps unwelcome if you hoped for a strictly ingratiating reprise of the original movie, but potentially electrifying if you care for a new departure. It comes as a tantalizing shock to realize that George Lucas's delightful cinematic dream world has darker undercurrents and a more expansive framework than anticipated. It's interesting to me because, uh, you know, we we were little bebes when this one came out. So, you know, for us, it all kind of fits in, you know, Star Wars set the tone and then we saw this and then Jedi goes the complete opposite way. And then with these new ones, you have... You have them kind of playing with different tones also. And Rogue One, I think, would be the closest to this as far as tone. So it's fun to hear that review of that time period and, and what, a, what a different take it was on the material that they were expecting. Right. And it's fascinating. Also, this is a it's a it, I'm always fascinated about how much space movie reviewers used to get uh, in the past. This is an extremely long review that Gary Arnold writes here. And he goes into a lot of speculation about what George Lucas is doing in a larger sense in terms of creating this whole fictional universe. And, and this was at the time when Lucas had started saying in interviews that he wanted to make three trilogies, um, which, of course, you know, took decades to actually come to pass. Um, but the idea of creating this sort of never-ending universe, or at least something this expansive, just wasn't done. And the way that Gary Arnold is speculating on how this is going to, you know, keep fans engaged for decades to come. I mean, and he's completely right about it, but that was something that that no one had done at this point. So it, it is fascinating to see that perspective. And then to see the alternate perspective from other critics who really didn't get this at all. Ooh, that sounds like a good transition to do your next review, Josh. Uh huh. Well, actually, I I, I have one more slightly positive review first. Um, so uh, this one is from Arthur Knight in The Hollywood Reporter, who said, while Empire doesn't quite measure up to Star Wars in the freshness and originality of its script and the plethora of space operas that has been jamming the screens ever since Star Wars has somewhat lessened the novelty of city-sized ships sailing the stratosphere, Nevertheless, this 20th Century Fox release remains a rattling good entertainment, a worthy successor to the original, and far and away the best of its kind since Star Wars itself. The Empire Strikes Back comes so loaded with ingenious effects and characters, so filled with hairbreadth escapes from devilishly devised perils, and is played out against some spectacular settings, some real, some studio-built, that only the most churlish ticket buyer could complain that he wasn't getting his money's worth. So that's more of just a like, it's a spectacle kind of take. Hey, Josh, what were some of those other space operas that came out around this time? I was wondering that. Yeah, too. I, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure probably a, a bunch of movies that we have forgotten about. Um, I was trying to find Siskel and Ebert's review of this, which they seem to have not done. But they did like a special episode about sci-fi movies. And they talk about some. Uh, the Black Hole was one that they mentioned which ironically was Disney's attempt to mm -hmm. capitalize on Star Wars that uh, generally was looked at as a sort of inferior attempt. And there's definitely a lot of like low budget movies from the late 70s and early 80s that um, attempt to capitalize on Star Wars. And I think a lot of which after many decades have kind of cult followings, but um, you know, none of which have really lived up 
to, you know, what they were going for because people don't have George Lucas's imagination or his budget or whatever. But yeah, the black hole is the one I can think of offhand. And that was the one that, that Siskel and Ebert really uh, trashed. I always think of Flash Gordon, but, um, you know, what do I know? Yeah, no, Flash Gordon is a good one, too, because that was based on those old comic strips that were an influence uh, for George Lucas, wasn't it? It was Buck Rogers, right, that he was actually trying to get the rights to, but couldn't. Well, I guess the Star Trek uh, films were around this time as well. Yeah, the first Star Trek movie came out around this time, and I'm sure that was one factor for Paramount deciding like, hey, we can bring bring back this old TV show and make a movie out of it. And there's an audience for it. Of course, Star Trek itself had a big following already. And that was one of the reasons. But I'm sure it's it's a it's a factor as well. Just wait till John Favreau gets his hands on it. Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> I, I'm I'm a bigger, you know, people always set up that dichotomy. I'm definitely a bigger Star Trek fan than a Star Wars fan. And I don't really want to see John Favreau ruin it. Well, I like Prince better than Michael Jackson. So cool. Okay, maybe John Favreau can reboot Prince. <laughs> He's got the money to, I think. He does. Point, so. He does indeed. He's taking all that money that those Star Wars novelists don't get. Right, right. He gets it all. So um, now on to the negative. Here's Vincent Canby in the New York Times. He says, The Empire Strikes Back is not a truly terrible movie. It's a nice movie. It's not by any means as nice as Star Wars. It's not as fresh and funny and surprising and witty, but it is nice and inoffensive and in a way that no one associated with it need to be ashamed of, it's also silly. Attending to it is a lot like reading the middle of a comic book. It is amusing in fitful patches, but you're likely to find more beauty, suspense, discipline, craft, and art when watching a New York Harbor pilot bring the Queen Elizabeth II into her Hudson River birth, which is what The Empire Strikes Back most reminds me of. It's a big, expensive, time-consuming, essentially mechanical operation. First of all, the first half of that quote sounded like it was written by a middle schooler. So, (laughs) and uh, I mean, dude, what are you talking about? The action sequences are the best part of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think Canby here, and he goes on in a lot of ways too, is one who really just wanted Star Wars again and doesn't understand this larger project that George Lucas is going on. I mean, the idea that this movie doesn't have, you know, that it's the middle of a story was something that was just not done. I mean, we're very used to that now. We see almost any blockbuster movie and we know that it's just a larger part of this sort of never ending serial narrative. But that wasn't something that happened in 1980. Right. But it had happened in books before. So like, chill out, dog. Yeah. And comic books, as he points out. But of course, this was also an era in which comic books were very much looked down upon by, you know, a movie critic for the New York Times or or someone. uh, There's more to that review. It's an extremely snobby review where he dismisses the idea of like, why are we even reviewing something like this? But I sit at my typewriter here with the prospect of writing about this movie. And, you know, he's just so, so uh, dismissive about it. What a dingus. He is quite a dingus. So um, <laughs> as I'm sure we've mentioned multiple times um, as we've quoted him in this. As uh, Rob Reiner was the first official director of uh, Awesome Movie Year, uh, Vincent Camby is the first official critic dingus of Awesome All Movie right. Year. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So obviously we had all seen this movie before, probably at least a few times. So, But none of us are big like Star Wars uh, aficionados, I guess. I, did you see this as a kid, Jason? 
Yeah, I saw it as a kid. I saw it as an adult. I saw it. I mean, I'm not a huge aficionado, but I've seen every movie except Solo because I just got burned out on it. And, uh, you know, I do watch some of the TV shows, like I said. So for someone who's not like a a fanboy, I've really seen a lot. And I think most of us uh, are in the same boat. Right, because it's just inescapable, essentially. So, yeah, I saw this as a kid, I'm sure, on VHS or whatever. But, I mean, this is one of those things where I think for all of us, we're all at the age where it would have, like, a lot of people our age saw this when we did and just became consumed by it. And, I, you know, I never really did. I saw it as a kid. I probably saw bits and pieces of it multiple times because people watched it at slumber parties and things like that. Um, you know, I, as I said on our Star Wars episode, I was friends with Nathan Hamill as a kid, Mark Hamill's son. So I certainly was surrounded by this stuff. And I thought it was cool, but I never remember being like that super immersed in it, per se. I was always like, I thought this was the best one, I think, throughout my entire life. And now I lean towards this or Rogue One. But it's interesting, I know, you know, to jump ahead, like, on this watch, I did not like it as much as all the other times. And I wonder why that is. Yeah, I, I think it's probably the best one, too. But it's the best of movies that, like, overall, I don't have, like, a huge amount of enthusiasm for. And I liked it fine. I, I, I enjoyed it this time, definitely. The last time I watched it, I think, was right before uh, The Force Awakens came out in 2015. So, you know, it's been a while. But it's not a kind of movie that I am like driven to revisit except for like if we have a podcast about it or whatever whereas i think so many people will just watch this as like a, a just in the background or something to do every so often because it comforts them what about you dave what's your history with this one i probably saw it as a kid but the first time i remember watching it was the re-release the was it 97 yeah uh, with the special effects updated and uh i hadn't seen it since then but uh, oh, wow. so I, like 25 years you hadn't seen this film. Yeah, no. And uh, it, it really held up for me. I mean, I know a lot of people consider it the best one. I think it probably is outside of The Last Jedi, which, you know, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people on the Internet that hate me for saying, but that is the best Star Wars movie. Well, I mean, and a lot of people love that movie. It's a very yeah. it's polarizing. But, you know, a lot of people who think it's brilliant and it is that the, was the last one, right? Is that no, the, last? the second no. to last. Yeah, it was that. That's the Ryan Johnson one that was the middle of the last trilogy. The yeah. the rise of Skywalker was the last where they one. had good ideas for a change, and then uh, JJ came in and just said, "No, none of that. Let's yeah. let's get rid of all." Right. Well, so, was, there's just so many of them. I can't remember which ones. Which. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we we can maybe talk about more of that later. So I mean, obviously, as with the original Star Wars, there's uh, so much to say about the background of this film, Jason. What would you want to get in here? Anything else on it? Yeah, well, Josh, we're talking about the writers. Um, you know, the science fiction writer Lee Brackett wrote the first draft of this and uh, then sadly died of cancer while, um, you know, they were going to go make uh, their changes. So that's when Lucas then wrote another draft of it. And that, that had like, um, he changed a ton of stuff. And then he brought in Lawrence Kasdan. Of course, this is, uh, you know, one of the biggest writers in Hollywood, Lawrence Kasdan. Kasdan kind of put it together. But Lucas fought to continue to have Brackett's name on there and paid the family. So I thought that was really cool. Um, So I just wanted to bring that up. And now I'll leave you alone for the rest of the episode. (laughs) Yeah, that is cool. And it's, you know, you you mentioned that Lawrence Kasdan is one of the biggest writers in Hollywood, which is true. But this was his first credit. This was his first writing credit. So Lucas really 
you know, brought brought him in and gave him this huge platform, uh, obviously, on a movie that was basically guaranteed to be a huge success. I like, uh, obviously, the locations. I think they did a great job, you know, finding those spaces in Norway. And then Lucas himself paid for the construction of the studio in England for them to do so much of the work. So uh, this kind of idea that you're talking about of just him as uh, no pun intended, an empire builder, you know, just goes to show he's always thinking ahead like that. Right. And he stepped back from directing and hired Irvin Kirshner to direct so that he could focus on building Industrial Light and Magic, his special effects company, which is, again, so much foresight because this company is going to become basically the dominant force in special effects for the next 40 years. And he realized that that was what he should be giving his attention to. So uh, a lot of credit to George Lucas for that kind of stuff. Right. And you had mentioned the Oscars. It won a BAFTA for for music for John Williams, and it won uh, People's Choice for Favorite Motion Picture, and it won four Saturn Awards and two Grammys for uh, John Williams. So um, it, it was uh, it got its just due. Yeah, but I think that, again, that sets up the pattern for the later films, which is that John Williams gets that respect. And then everything else is just like technical awards and, you know, fan awards like the People's Choice or the Saturn Awards. Well, I mean, who did you want to did you want to give Hayden Christensen a Best Actor Award, Josh? No, I'm not. I'm not saying it's deserved or undeserved. I'm just saying that that's been the trend for these films going forward. Gotcha. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on The Empire Strikes Back. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about The Empire Strikes Back, which was the actual box office champion of 1980 and juggernaut of popular culture for the next uh, forever, basically, (laughs) (laughs) until we all die and beyond. Well, I mean, when uh, when humans have to go live in space, it's just going to have more resonance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is. Um, And they'll just start making these movies like on the actual moon, like uh, like Tom Cruise making his space movie that's coming up. So um, is he he just shooting that in, you know, space or is he actually going to the moon, Josh? No, no, no. Just 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 space. Don't don't give Tom Cruise too much credit. Tom Cruise is only going into space. He's not going to. the. I mean, you know, but, uh, you know, if you think, what was it? uh, Apollo, uh, the the uh, the Tom Hanks one. Yeah. uh, 13. Right. They did zero G shooting. So, yeah, but they didn't do it in actual space. They just did it in like, uh, you know, the. Close to atmosphere. I don't yeah. Know. All right. This is not relevant. Star Wars, not shot in space. Just, just to be clear about that. <laughs> I might have to question you on that one. So. <laughs> so we're saying this is the best of the Star Wars movies. What what makes it the best? To me, right away, the darker tone. You know, I know people like that whimsy in some of them. But like I said, uh, uh, Rogue One was the same thing to me. I like how dark it is. I like that. um you know, a lot of the time, the good guys don't win in this one and in that one. And um, I think the the worlds are really cool in this one. I like that the atmosphere of, as we said, Hoth and the Sky City and and uh, Dagobah. You know, is that how I, you pronounce it? So, I think it's Dagobah. Dagobah. And I also think the interplay with uh, Leah and Han is the best in this one. It's there's a lot of action, like there's a lot of movement for that. Like they're always trying to fix something, but that kind of uh, you know flirtiness while they're doing that is a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. It is. I think what struck me this time 
was not only like, yes, it's darker, although I think we've seen so many dark, uh, even big blockbuster type movies that that maybe that darkness feels exaggerated now. I mean, it still is full of whimsy and it's full of of quips and humor and all that kind of stuff that people enjoyed in that first movie. But you're right about the idea that this is about the good guys not winning, that it's just one setback after another. And it ends with the furthest setback of all. And we don't know what's what's going to happen um, I mean, we do know what's going to happen, but if you were watching the movie at the time that it was released, you didn't know what was going to happen. And I think because this wasn't such a corporate behemoth that if you were watching this movie in 1980, you could have thought maybe Luke will die. Maybe Han will die. You know, it was possible at that time, even though now we're like, no way would that happen? Well, you know, I'm going to spoil another movie that I think everyone in the world has seen, but it's like, uh, that first part of Avengers uh, Endgame is that the one where Thanos makes the entire yeah. world disappear? And I was like, I love that. I wish that was the end of the series. But right. you know, to me, I get it. Um, okay, you now you can bring them back and have the hero's redemption. But it it means so much more when you put these end of the world obstacles in front of them. Sure, sure, and and you're right, especially with those Marvel movies and any big blockbuster franchise. Um, I think, Dave, you were just talking about on the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group about the Fast and Furious franchise and how they keep bringing people back from the dead, Mm. Um, you know, and even here, right? We had Obi-Wan Kenobi die. It was a a, a very important moment in the first movie. And he's still dead, but being dead doesn't seem to really hinder him all that much. And he's hanging out and giving Luke advice. Yeah. So already we've got that. Well, he's in the afterlife and, you know, so, you know, that whole thing with, um, Alec Guinness, you know, at this point in time, his uh, his eyesight was so bad he couldn't be on set because of the the lights and everything. So um, they basically had to they sweetheart dealed him into coming back. And I'm sure they they made it comfortable for him. But basically, he shot for like a day or something like that. And uh, Lucas gave him 0.25 percent of the gross profits on that. So, yeah, which I'm sure was a massive amount of money. Right. Wow. But he's so important, you know, and and the stuff with him. And this is the first time we see Yoda in the Star Wars series. And that relationship is so important. And I think that's another thing people love about this is it's the first time you see Yoda and it's the first time you see Boba Fett. So it's got its moments. Yeah. I mean, it does introduce these new characters that went on to be essential parts of the franchise. Also, Lando Calrissian is seen for the first time in this film. Uh, The Emperor who um, we all, I'm sure, watched the special edition this time if we watched it on Disney+. Plus, So we get to see, get to see uh, Ian McDiarmid as the emperor who's been inserted, even though he wasn't actually in this movie originally. But the character of the emperor became a huge deal, um, especially in the prequels, um, building up to Darth Vader's uh, creation or whatever. Which is the one where he's like uh, a supernatural dead power thing? I don't that's, know. That's the Rise of Skywalker, the most that's recent That's the last one. one. Yeah. Oh, it was they, so bad. Yeah. They, Terrible. They, they inserted him back in so that they could uh, retcon the origin for Rey, the, the, the Daisy Ridley character. Yeah. A lot of bad decisions later on in various ways, but many... Of those bad decisions or the 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 sort of trend of being able to to retcon stuff come from George Lucas. You know, George Lucas is the one who inserted Ian McDiarmid back into this film um, after he was cast as the emperor. He's the one who made, you know, all these changes that we now see that are the only really uh, reasonable way to watch this movie 
is the version that Lucas has added all of these things. But, but I didn't mind that in this one, as opposed to when we talked about Star Wars and, you know, they had those like totally out of place effects of Jabba the Hutt and stuff like that. Yeah, it's less obtrusive in this one than it is there. I definitely noticed with Ian McDiarmid, I'm like, that doesn't look like a guy from 1980 doing that scene talking to Darth Vader. And there is one moment with with Cloud City, the the city in the sky where Lando Calrissian lives, where Bespin uh, on Bespin, the planet Bespin. Yes. And some of the shots seem to be the original effects with like miniatures and stuff. And then some of them are added CGI shots. And the city doesn't even look the same. They look very different. And that to me was distracting. There was at least one shot where I was like, this doesn't look like what I just saw. And we've talked about this before. Um, those kind of like real effects, those in-camera effects and and the, the set building, they go such a long way. I don't know why you'd want to ruin those. Right. No, I agree. And I think it's very impressive. And I think I said this maybe when we talked about Star Wars and it's less noticeable here, but you know, CGI from 1997, I feel like has aged worse than practical effects from 1977. And so now it doesn't look as good. Um, and, you know, but we're stuck with it. So, Josh, let's let's discuss the ending here. OK, uh, if you don't know this movie, The Empire Strikes Back, go watch it now. Um, so, so many things happen, right? Like they yes. take uh, Han Solo, who might be the most beloved hero of right, and they and they freeze him in carbonite, like our audience wants to do to you. So mm -hmm. we don't we don't know if he's alive or dead, or you know we know he's alive in the carbonite, but we don't know what's going to happen to him. And I could see a lot of the crowd being like, "Why would they do that to Han?" and everything like that. You know, uh, we find out obviously the biggest pop cultural reveal of all time that Darth Vader is Luke's father, right? Yeah, and um. Uh, so it really does go super dark there at the end. Yeah, it does. And that's another thing that I was trying to think. What would it be like to have seen Star Wars and be in the theater watching this movie and hear that Darth Vader is Luke's father? Like, it's it's such a cliche. Anyone Anyone who has never seen a Star Wars movie knows that Darth Vader is Luke's father. But, like, I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to hear that for the first time. And to just be like blown away by, I mean, and, and Gary Arnold talks about it a bit in his review about how like this is such an amazing twist and it adds so much for the future of the franchise and makes you rethink what came before and all that. And, you know, now we just kind of take it for granted. Right. And we know that like Mark Hamill wasn't a, a big fan of the idea of Luke Skywalker and Leia being brother and sister. But I like those little sprinkles that they put in, you know. Um, where Luke is like the last hope and 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 uh they're like, no, there is a Yoda says there is another one, you know. I love stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, Lucas is very good at like planting those seeds to get people to be like, What? What does that mean? I can't wait to find out. I have to see the next movie. Um, you know, and this cliffhanger that uh, unlike now where just there's just like constant Star Wars that is inescapable, people had to wait like three years to see the next movie with nothing in between other than rewatching the first two. And then the next one is so different tonally from this one. That's like the most childish kind of and I'm not saying that in a bad way. I mean, that's the most like family friendly one of the bunch. Right. With the Ewoks and whatever. And it really it does go back to Lucas's idea that he wanted these to be movies for kids, essentially. But I think other than the the darkness there is in this film, but I always I also thought watching it this time, like the character development here, where the characters in Star Wars are very one dimensional. And that's probably by design. It's meant to be like this old serial or whatever. But he really spends time in this film 
delving into Leia and and maybe not so much Han, but Leia and Luke and their emotional journeys. Um, Leia really steps up as this leader. I mean, this is a very progressive for 1980 depiction of a woman in a genre film who is a strategic leader and is planning attacks and things like that um, and is not just like a damsel in distress. So I was impressed with that stuff this time around. Right. And I had read that the Bracket uh, original screenplay had her more as that damsel in distress. So even the fact that he was able to change that afterwards is pretty cool. On the other side, really, it did nothing for the progress of Wookiees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. Uh, you know, Chewbacca, hey, he, he, well, I guess he doesn't really. He keeps being told to fix stuff and then he fails. So. He goes off with Lando. Uh, okay, here's a few problems I have with okay. the, with the yeah. characters, Josh. Let's hear it. First of all, when Luke goes to train with um, Yoda, he's a real knob job on that. Uh, you know, he's he's so impatient and uh, just like at some point, if I was Yoda, I'd be like, just, just get out of here. You, you little bitch, you know? <laughs> so, um, and he, and he does, it's interesting that he does go against both Yoda and, uh, Ben's, uh, advice there. And I guess he does it for a good reason, but at the same time, if he's supposed to learn the force and, and become a Jedi, you would think he would stay in a train. Yeah. I mean, and I think that is part of his character development, that he remains this young, impulsive, guy and even though he has a better understanding of his destiny or whatever he still doesn't have the patience that is needed and you know you want to set up the tension again we know that he's not going to turn to the dark side but at the time i think lucas wants to set up the idea that the audience might think maybe he will maybe he'll go with darth vader and turn evil the one thing i thought was strange about that is yoda i think says to him you know if you go while your reason may be good, you know, it's going to be the cause of the downfall of all this. And it wasn't at all. Well, it wasn't eventually. But in the moment, you know, Han is frozen in carbonite and uh, Leia is, well, I guess Leia is okay, but she is uh, running away. And he certainly doesn't make things any better by going to Cloud City and attempting to rescue him. Here's my question, right? And he uh, gets his hand cut off. Well, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. He's hand solo. Hey, yo. Sorry. I had to to use that there. That was fantastic. Bravo, Josh. But let's talk about that because at the beginning of the movie, right, he's hanging upside down and uh, that beast is going to eat him, right? And he uses the force to like get the lightsaber to come over to him. So when his hand gets chopped off, why didn't he just use the force to bring it back to his body? <laughs> well, he might be able to, I mean, he can't reattach it. It would just be like hovering there. I mean, would it? I don't know. You don't know all the, you're not a Jedi master. You don't know what can and can't happen. I, I don't think it's ever been established in any Star Wars lore that Jedis can reattach severed legs. <laughs> the John Wayne Bobbitt uh, Star Wars parody. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> hey, Josh, what about Lando? You know, cool guy Lando there. Uh, he betrays everybody too. He does. I mean, and and he betrays them like immediately. He in fact pre-betrays them because he does it before they even arrive. He pre-trays them. Yeah. But I think mm-hmm. he he explains his reason. And and I mean, you know, and that's part of the sort of darkness or complexity of this movie that like this guy has sold them out to the empire, but then he has a change of heart or maybe he doesn't even have a change of heart. He realizes, "Oh, Darth Vader is not going to follow through on things he's promised and I'm screwed too, so I might as well go with the uh, with Leia." Um, you know, that's more than just a one-dimensional character. Yeah, with great hair. With great hair and the cape. I mean, you got to love that. And and he I I also loved about with Lando with the cape that 
It's obviously an extremely impractical piece of attire, but at one point he gets like roughed up or something. And then he's like, I, I got to put the cape back on. He just like swishes it back on. <laughs> yeah, I would wear a cape. I like that. I, I bet you would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, look, we we uh, we've gone over Star Wars and, and and we've talked about a lot of the cool things here. Like, I think the AT AT walkers are cool. And, you know, um, there's there's a lot of fun stuff here. But um, uh, is there anything that you loved or hated in this movie? Either of you guys? I mean, there's definitely not anything that I hated in this movie. I, I, I do feel like it's so ubiquitous and it's so familiar that it's maybe sometimes difficult to feel that like sense of wonder about it after you watch it again. Um, so there's also really not anything that I loved about this movie, but I did, like I said, I appreciate the amount of world building and character development that goes into this film and that Lucas is really using that larger canvas. You really get a sense in this film, I think far more than the original, that this takes place in this vast universe of different characters and different planets and different species. And you can envision this whole other set of stories that will come later. Yeah. I mean, you might even say it took place in a galaxy far, far away. You mm-hmm. might. But I feel like it's more of that. Whereas Star Wars will tell you that it takes place in a galaxy far, far away, but a lot of it just takes place like in a room. In a room far, far away. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and that's and that's, you know, for for practical reasons, because Lucas could only do so much with that film, but he can do a lot more here. And he really, again, it goes to his overall vision for this as more than just this one movie. And and I appreciated that this time. So I th- I think that we're not uh giving enough credit to Darth Vader and how much he solidifies himself as an awesome villain in this movie. Yeah, that's true. He is very menacing and he keeps killing all his underlings really mm-hmm. unnecessarily because he treats them all out. like shit basically he's run the out time. of them eventually um <laughs> but yeah he's he's very scary and and i think again that moment of him telling luke i am your father that it's like holy shit this super scary guy is luke's father how is luke gonna handle that and you know we we brush over it now but it's a big big deal he handles it by going down a super fun slide Wee! Yeah. <laughs> thank you <laughs> but by the way uh real quick before we wrap up this segment he doesn't say luke i am your father that is that, true that kind of blew my mind on this rewatch yeah he just says i am your father and yeah he says luke he says luke something something and then he something says, something something and then yeah. he gets to it well yeah. it's, it's like all a lot of those fans like you know they never say play it again sam in uh, sure. Casablanca and and Captain Kirk never said, beam me up, Scotty, you know, things like that. People just assume it at this point. The world is fake, man. Exactly. <laughs> Shaq never, or uh, what was it? Sinbad. Sinbad never starred as a genie or whatever the hell that is. <laughs> the, the maybe dog. not in the, maybe not on this planet, but right. again, in a galaxy far, far away. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, should we rate this out of five? Uh, I don't know. Severed Luke Skywalker hands. Sure. We love uh, severed body parts uh, for our rating system. I so guess we, we do. Yeah. So I used to have this as four and uh, on this one, I just gave it three. I don't know. I just didn't uh, motor along for me and I I found certain things annoying, but hey, maybe I watch it again in a year or two and it gets back to four. Yeah, I I give this a three and a half uh, severed hands. So sever the severed hand in half um, one time, which to me is like, that's the best rating I can give any of these movies because they're fun, but they just don't really reach me in any greater way than that. So Dave? I'm going to four. I mean, it's a fun movie. And as the best 
Star Wars, like I said, you know, outside of The Last Jedi, I mean, it's got to be a little bit on the high end, you know? Sure, sure. And and I mean, I'm sure Jason and I are rating it much lower than than most Star Wars fans would. But to me, it's like even the best of these is just like a fun little time and it won't particularly stay with me. Well, I mean, but I used to, I mean, like I said, I love this one for, yeah. so I don't know. It just, for some reason, this watch just didn't do it for me. So. Yeah, well, just watch it every day for the next month because that's what people there you do. Go. All right. That sounds like a plan. Yeah. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of The Empire Strikes Back. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about The Empire Strikes Back, the second film in the never-ending Star Wars series and the actual box office champion of 1980. And uh, there's a lot of legacy. As, as we said earlier, you know, we talked a lot about this in our episode on the original Star Wars. So some of those big things we're going to gloss over. But there are a lot of new elements introduced in this film that went on to be a big deal. I mean, I think simply the idea of Star Wars as this ongoing franchise, of course, has begun here because Lucas not only is able to make a sequel, but is able to make a sequel that ends on all these cliffhangers because he knows for sure there's going to be another movie. And he's able to go in the press and say, I'm going to make nine movies. I'm going to make three trilogies. And people are like, oh, okay, cool. They believe him. So I, I think that idea, like this movie to me, even more so than the original Star Wars, is the template for like the modern blockbuster film. Hmm. Gonna take some time to think about that. <laughs> I'm gonna noodle on that one for a little while. So, I mean, you know, on the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, um, like you said, Josh, he has been. I mean, he had this plan all along. Well, right, but he wasn't able to execute it in the same way early on. You know, he had to kind of hedge his bets in the first Star Wars because he didn't know if it was going to work out. Like, you know, again, like hi hiring Alan Dean Foster to write that novel, he didn't know. But now he's able to really put his full uh, sort of uh, creative vision into place with this. And I, I just think also like the structure of this movie where it's like different set pieces in different places and cutting back and forth. Like we expect that out of every big action movie now that there's going to be like, oh yeah, we're going to start with this introductory scene where there's going to be some right. action in one place. And then we're going to, whether it's a Fast and Furious movie or a Mission Impossible movie or a Marvel superhero movie or a Star Wars movie or any of these major, major franchises, they're all structured like The Empire Strikes Back. No, that's a fair point. And, um, you know, I remember when we talked about Star Wars, we talked about, you know, kind of how slow it was at the beginning. So this one comes right out with the rocket boosters and then it goes a little slow in the middle. But Josh, do you want to give any credit to Irving Kirshner or are you just going to just say he didn't do anything? Here? Well, sure. I mean, I think a lot of what Irving Kirshner deserves credit here for is the fact that the performances are less stiff in this film, that Lucas is obviously notoriously not a great director at working with actors. And I'm sure Kirshner did a better job of that, allowed for some improvisation and things like that. Um, and the character development, too. I feel like that's something that he was probably able to work with being directly on set, whereas the big picture stuff still comes from Lucas. Right. And it's so strange because like this was, as we have said, the highest grossing film and a lot of people's favorite. And like Irving Kirshner really didn't do. I mean, he did never say never again after this, but he never became 
a big director. He was a working director, but you know, that was, you know, this was it. Right. I mean, and I think because Lucas is so indelibly associated with this and even in, again, even in reviews in 1980, there was at least one review that basically dismissed him like, oh yeah, he's the director, but you get the sense that Lucas is pulling all the strings. It might've been Vincent Canby who said that. So I think even at the time, they're minimizing his contributions. And yeah, he he went on to direct only two more theatrical movies uh, after this, both famous sequels, Never Say Never Again, which we talked about in our uh, You Only Live Twice episode, which is sort of the weird, unofficial James Bond movie with Sean Connery returning. And then he also directed RoboCop 2, which I loved as a kid, but I think it's probably very bad. Um, and, you know, so and then he spent the next 20 years doing like a handful of TV episodes and mainly working as a college professor before he died in, in 2010. So, yeah, never became this big, big director that you would think he might have been. Where was he a college professor? That would have been awesome to be like, yo, my teacher directed uh, Empire Strikes Back. Right, right. Yeah. He Well, he had also he had worked as a professor before. Uh, this as well. Like that was something that he did throughout his career. He he taught at USC, which of course is, you know, the alma mater of George Lucas, um, the Maryland Institute for Technology in the Humanities uh, mm -hmm. at the University of Maryland, where is where he was later in his career. But I mean, it, it seemed like something that maybe, you know, that he probably had a passion for that he did uh, for many, many years. Right. That's cool. Yeah. So, you know, good for him for giving back. And, and maybe he also, he turned down the opportunity to direct Return of the Jedi. So maybe he didn't necessarily want to become this big blockbuster director. The biggest name uh, from the technical side, obviously, other than, um, or the world building side, shall we say, other than George Lucas is Lawrence Kasdan, who is synonymous with the Star Wars franchise. And... Uh, of course, was so instrumental in this last reboot and kind of recharging the franchise with J.J. Abrams before Favreau kind of took it over. But, you know, he like we said, he's one of the most prolific writers uh, in Hollywood and, you know, the big chill, the accidental tourist body. He he uh, he directed those movies as well. And then, of course, um, you know, Indiana Jones. So uh, he's done all right for himself. Yeah, he's he's hugely influential and successful and was a big part of the revitalization of Star Wars. Not only him, but also his uh, his sons, Jake Kasdan and John Kasdan, very successful. John Kasdan was the one, I think, who worked with him on, on the screenplay for Solo. So uh, like a dynasty going on here in Hollywood with this family. Do you like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark better than the Star Wars movies? Uh, no, I don't know. I haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark in a while. I think those movies are also those Indiana Jones movies are like, ah, they're fun, but I was never obsessed with them or anything like that. Peter Shishishki, I'm not, I'm sure I'm butchering his name. The director of photography who did a great job in this, uh, was the director of photography and the Rocky Horror Picture Show and a lot of Cronenberg movies, including Crash, which we covered and, uh, Eastern Promises, History of Violence. And another, uh, I guess, uh, I'm not going to call it a space opera, but a space invasion movie, Mars Attacks. Yeah, very different kind of movie, but it does uh, it does involve space. <laughs> so, I mean, the the special editions also are a big legacy that were released in in '97, and as we said, is basically uh, the only accessible way to see these movies now. And so, we see this with Ian McDiarmid as the Emperor. We see it also with uh, Tamura Morrison 
who plays Boba Fett in the recent, um, you know, Book of Boba Fett TV series, as well as played the predecessors of Boba Fett in the prequels. And he is now heard as the voice of Boba Fett in this film. So, um, you know, you're missing certain aspects. And it was interesting to me, you watch this movie, even the special edition and the credits still credit the original actors who've been erased from this film. Jeremy Bullock, who played uh, Boba Fett, and uh, the stand-ins who played the Emperor, and I forget who it was who did the voice of the Emperor, but you know th- their contributions have been basically like deleted from canon. Except not anymore because of you, Josh. Yeah, I'm bringing. Well, you I, keep I their actually, legacy alive. I actually was tempted to find the uh, de-specialized editions, which are the uh, fan versions uh, that restore the original elements, but also have uh, you know high quality picture. And it's just a pain in the ass. You have to do it on like a BitTorrent or something, and it just didn't seem worth the effort. But it's sad that that's the only way to watch it in its original form. Uh, well, not sad is the career of Billy D. Williams, uh, Lady Sings the Blues, and constantly working, even to this day. I think we uh, all remember him for the Colt 45 commercials growing up, right? But sure. he's always just such a cool guy, you know, smooth guy. And, and he works, uh, like I said, to this day. So... Good for Billy D. And of course, we got to mention Frank Oz, the voice of Yoda, one of the greatest performers in all of entertainment history. And I'm not saying that because of Yoda. I'm saying that because of his contribution to the Muppets. I love me some Frank Oz. He's also directed some very good movies. I think What About Bob? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Billy D. Williams, uh, I mean, he's in Return of the Jedi, but he also then returned to the role of Lando in The Rise of Skywalker, which is maybe not a good movie. And I feel like Lando in that movie doesn't really do anything of value, but he's there. And Billy D. Williams got to play him again. And there's still, I, I feel like there's still these rumors, uh, you know, uh, Donald Glover played the younger version of Lando in Solo, which I feel like is kind of an underrated movie. And he did a very good job of it in that film, Donald Glover. And there's rumors still that there will be a Lando TV series that might include both Donald Glover and Billy Ugh, Williams, which Jason yeesh. does not want to watch. I can't. It's just too much, man. So, Did you know there was a 1982 radio play of this uh, film, The Empire Strikes Back, Josh? Oh, no, that's cool. I didn't realize that was a big thing in like the 30s and 40s. There were always radio play versions of movies. So I did not know that. Did it have the same cast? I don't know. Okay, well, thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I wanted to also, you know, you talked about Frank Oz, and but Yoda as a character, you know, is introduced in this film and again, becomes such a huge, huge part of the Star Wars franchise. He's in the prequels as a CGI character mostly, but but still voiced by Frank Oz. And uh, then, of course, we have Grogu, the baby Yoda in The Mandalorian, who is another huge, huge deal. And I think Frank Oz was like, not happy with something with maybe with Grogu or something. He's Frank Oz has been kind of down on Star Wars lately. I, I think on the Muppets too, because I think they kind of have like pushed him out. But you know, yeah. he's so so talented, Frank Oz. Yeah, Disney Disney of course also now owns the Muppets, so they're just pushing him out so, of everything. So maybe we can have the finally the love triangle between Miss Piggy Kermit and Yoda. Yeah, oh boy. that's uh, that's very important. Of course, I also want to mention Dave. I'm sure also appreciates the Weird Al Yankovic song Yoda. Yes. A parody of Lola by the Kinks. Well, I think that wraps this one up, Josh. (laughs) Sorry. I just, I had to, I had to get that. I had to get that in there. Um, Yeah. You know, that, that might actually, I mean, Boba Fett, you also mentioned who became such a huge deal and his, I don't think any of us saw his TV series recently. Jason, did you watch that? No, no, not that one. Yeah. But the one currently coming out is the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, 
with Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan. And, and we both, I watched the first episode of it. I don't know. Did you watch more of it? I watched the first, but I plan on watching the rest. I did enjoy it. Yeah, it was not bad. And I think Ewan McGregor really is, it's a fine line where he's channeling Alec Guinness, but he doesn't just sound like he's doing an impression of Alec Guinness. I feel like he he treads that line very well and uh, you know does a good job bringing that character to life. So, um, and, and, and as important as the Weird Al song, just the last thing, one of the famous lines here, uh, Leia calling Han a, uh, scruffy nerf herder. Right. The band nerf herder. For the band nerf herder. Nice. Good, good Let's make sure to end yeah. on that. So well played. Well played. <laughs> so that is the Empire Strikes Back. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, check us out on social media. Sure. Why not? I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. Uh, my website, Go for Jason, I think is still in a galaxy far, far away, but I think we're going to update it soon. Oh, wow. The force will be with it. All right. And Josh, we're at uh, awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And Dave, is this episode going up in our feed or on your uh, blood sucking Patreon that we never see money from? No, this is this is going out to all of our listeners, but we do have a special bonus episode that will be on the Patreon. So so Fat Cat Dave can continue lining his pockets. From all we we're at we're at double digits on we the sure Patreon subscribe. We should be yeah, that, that means Josh, you have to start doing all those things that we talked about in other episodes. Was oh, it yeah. really was this a double digits? I don't even remember what yeah. any of those things were. It wasn't just me, it was you also. We'll have well, a meeting soon. Yeah, we'll uh, as long as Josh is wrestling someone when he's covered in oil, I think we've covered <laughs> covered the rules here. <laughs> I don't think we need any of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, where I do have some things I've written uh, uh, related to Star Wars over the years, probably. At uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And so, Jason, we do have another bonus episode for this season that's going to be available on Patreon. What is that episode? Josh, you can't get through 1980 without talking about Raging Bull, Martin Scorsese. Um, and we did talk about it a little on our Ordinary People episode, so I'm excited to deep dive that one. So, Dave, where can people find that Patreon? It is the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, and you can find that at patreon.com slash by David Rosen. So check that out, sign up, and hear our episode on Raging Bull. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Any Anything else that you wanted to add about the band Nerf Herder? What is your favorite <laughs> Nerf Herder song? They did have that one song, right? Was it? Was, oh, the drum, was the drummer from Def Leppard only had one arm? Was that their song? No, I don't think that was. I feel I like that kinda, is. So. I, maybe it is. I actually kind of like them. And I have like one of their albums that I had listened to. They had a lot of like. Uh, joke kind of songs. Or, like the drummer from Def Leppard only had one arm. Yeah, I don't think that's the title of the song, whatever their their one hit was. Um, but um, I think I saw them with Real Big Fish once. That sounds about right. So if you're wondering if I uh, was doing things in the 90s, hello. 
Yeah. All right. I'm trying to. No, that's yes. the Bloodhound Gang. That, that's... Yep. Why is everybody always picking on me? Yeah, it's Bloodhound the Bloodhound Gang. gang. Yeah. How dare you confuse the Bloodhound Gang with Nerf Herder? <laughs> you and it me, may... baby, ain't nothing but nat mammals. So let's. Yeah, that's the Bloodhound that. Gang. It's the Bloodhound yeah. Gang. So, Dave, make sure to cut. Oh, all of this that. will all be on. Yeah. <laughs>